Hello and welcome to Radio, a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa, where we get members of the Entrepreneurs Organization to share their learnings with you, the, the listener. Um, and today I'm sitting here with Dr. Jed Myers, the CEO of Health Insights, amongst many other companies. Um, thank you very much for coming here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, appreciate it. I suppose the first question always helps people if you could give us your like the elevator pitch of what your business does, so people know who you are and what you're about. So essentially, we run, uh, own, and run a group of uh, of businesses that focus mainly in the delivery of healthcare services into corporates, um, and we've got um, businesses in South Africa and Australia, and those services into corporates range from online health and wellness engagement platforms and activity challenges through to executive wellness, occupational health and safety. Um, and then we've diversified outside of that. Uh, we also run a, a home and uh, a, a frail care business and um, data analytics and some um, kind of related services outside of healthcare as well. Okay. I yeah. mean, it's very interesting. You seem to be a doctor, but you've gotten into... Everything for my for my actually suits. doctoring. <laughs> I mean, tell us a little bit how you got from from not running just a, a general practitioner to running multiple health businesses. Um, so I always wanted to, to be a doctor. I really, really did. And uh, I think if if I had to do it all again, I'd study medicine again because I'm I'm quite passionate about healthcare. Um, and I I suppose I had one or two big epiphanies in the journey uh, towards the end of studying medicine. The one was that I didn't feel that I would be completely fulfilled as a specialist um, for, for the rest of my life. I felt it quite limiting. Um, but the bigger epiphanies were, I, I'd, I've always been interested in business and the commercial world, and I, I've been investing in, um, it, I've been investing my money for a very long time, since I was 13 years old. And uh, so the business world has always fascinated me, and that, that overlapped with an epiphany that um, I have the opportunity to treat more than one patient at a time. And if I can build systems, I can treat thousands and millions of people at the same time as if I was a specialist in a hospital one-on-one. And that epiphany hit me when I was working as a doctor. Um, And you're like sitting with one patient at a time and it's amazing and it's fulfilling, but um, I thought that I could have a larger impact in the healthcare space and and the world and um, went back and started building some ideas and business plans I suppose they were quite naive at the time, but uh, fast forward a couple of years and, and here we are. Um, can you tell us some of your failed, naive business business plans? I, well, funnily enough, some of them I think have come to, through to fruition, uh, m- maybe not in the original form that we, that we thought about, but I always had, uh, you know, I had this idea, because um, it was quite early in the industry in South Africa, that if you made employees healthy, businesses would do better. And be more profitable. But I didn't really know how that kind of translated into selling. Uh, and our first kind of evolutions were like um, about doing wellness days in companies, which um, has kind of fizzled out as, as an as attractive commercial industry. But um, I, I suppose it came through to fruition. Um, so naive in the sense that I don't think there was any commercial sense in the pitch when we pitched the first investors. But um, down the line, we've managed to figure it all out. Okay. And so when were this, you know, wellness is huge. Like when, yeah. when were you? So um, I've, I've been in this industry now for um, about 12 years. 
Um, and in the early days, it was it, it was still a developing space. I mean, it is it's it's now quite a main theme uh, industry. South Africa is actually quite more advanced than most other countries we work in. You know, we we've got presence in Australia and we're there um, quite intensively. And South Africa is definitely way ahead of Australia in terms of corporate wellness programs and the structures. I think America probably leads the way in many of them, but um, we've been able to work out the right models in South Africa to progress the industry as much as we we, we are able to. Um, but yeah, when we first started, uh, we were knocking on people's doors and HIV was still a big catchphrase at that stage. And uh, you know, anyone who was brave enough to touch the dangerous dark world of HIV was considered a pioneer, um, whereas now it's uh, it's it's just a chronic disease of lifestyle. Yeah, it's a little a little pinprick in your thumb, and they tell you five minutes later. Yeah, and and it's easy, more easily treatable than many of the chronic diseases, um, although it still carries a significantly higher stigma. Um, I mean, we we have beautiful stories of people that we treat for HIV. Amazing stories. We did last year. We delivered six babies to HIV positive mothers, and all the babies were HIV negative. Um, so we're really backing that curve. Um, yeah, those were some of the those days. But HIV wasn't like that uh, 12 years ago. It was enormously stigmatized in the workplace. And you think that's all shifted and changed now? No. Um, I think it should have, but it hasn't really. Um, in some spaces, yes, it has, but not, not completely. Um, there's still huge ignorance around HIV. Um, often have dinner conversations with people and, and I literally just say to them, like, if you are sexually active, you're at risk of contracting HIV and I get uh, jaw-dropping responses. Um, so I don't think we've, we, we've turned it still an epidemic. We've got some of the highest infection rates in the world in South Africa. Um, but I think the, the, the government and the country are on the right trend. I mean, I think you touched on something interesting there where it's, it's almost like human nature. We know, you know, like that's not a shocking fact. You know about it, but you almost don't want to hear about it. So yeah. Maybe the stigma is perpetrated by the fact that people just don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. So they'll just 100%. ignore it and pretend like it's not happening. Yeah. Ignorance in health is not bliss. Eh? I mean, people try to think of it like that. Um, you know, um, you're nothing without your health. Um, and not being empowered about your HIV status is almost like, kind of not knowing your blood pressure and your cholesterol these days. It really is. It's, in fact, it's easier to treat than many of the chronic diseases like high blood pressure and cholesterol. Um, better success rates, less complications. Um, people live longer with HIV than they do with high blood pressure or untreated diabetes, as an example. So it's enormously stigmatized, enormously, across the board, um, which is a shame. But uh, we, we think we've been able to integrate uh, effective programs. Um, tell me a bit, I mean, like you touched on something there about like being ignorant about your health is not not a, a survival Lit. strategy or not bliss. <laughs> yeah. um, and I know we had this conversation at Ignite a few years ago where I hadn't hadn't had my checkup and didn't yeah. know my kind of thing. And obviously running a business, you, you exert yourself under huge stress and huge pressure, um, which is not necessarily the fastest way to live the longest life. Yeah. Um, can you touch a bit more? I mean, I know you're very like – passionate about executive health and and kind of the benefits yeah. of it. Like, I mean, how do you guys approach that? You know, how have you turned it into a business? Um, you know, can you talk a little bit around that? Sure. That sort of thing, I suppose. But also help, I know how healthy you are and how seriously you take your own health. Um, sure, yeah. Share a bit of that. Um, 
Yeah, I, you know, we're enormously passionate about um, executive health and wellness. And I think um, being an entrepreneur and a member of this organization translates directly in, into entrepreneurial health. Because executive health is classically put forward as, as the, the mitigation of risk into large corporates. And you can understand it. I mean, um, we do the executive medicals for most of the large banks in the country. And you have CEOs of banks earning 20, 30, 40 million rand a year. It's a serious knock to that company's uh, growth strategy, their, 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 their plans for the future, how they perform every single day if all of a sudden it's here to die. Um, we use the case study of the business connection acquisition that went off the table because the CEO died of a heart attack in his office. Um, and that, like ignorance around the risk relating to executive health, is, is quite well understood. I mean, and it's clearly documented scientifically here and in America and all over. Um, hysterically, when you do a review of um, CEOs in America that have died on the stock exchange from sudden death, so unexpected sudden loss of an executive on the U.S. stock exchange, more than 50% of those deaths are related to health. Um, and only 20% of them are related to airplane crashes. So people are more worried about what seat they're in an airplane and if two execs are in the same airplane than they are about health. And I suppose if you extrapolate that into the entrepreneurial space, entrepreneurs only have their health. Never mind if they're stressed or not. Um, I'll come to that in a second. But if they don't know if they're going to have a heart attack at work the next day and their business collapse because they die, that's their business, their employees, their family, their livelihoods. Most of them, their retirement plans are sitting in that business. So not, it would almost be the same as not knowing if they have enough money in their bank to pay their employees. They, they literally could be running out of gas the next hour and they wouldn't know. Um, so that, that's why we say ignorance is not bliss. In fact, it's irresponsible, I think. And, uh, and we truly believe that. But I suppose something that's helped us transform this into um, a successful business is the fact that we position it and really work hard not only to focus on risk mitigation, but also performance optimization. This is an opportunity for people to be far more effective in their business, in their lives. Um, and that's also proven. Um, that the healthier you are, the more balanced you are. I hate that word balanced, but the more kind of um, holistic you are in terms of your health, mental, spiritual, emotional, um, over and above the physical, you're a far more effective person as a husband, as a father, as a business owner, as a business partner. Um, I mean, it makes sense. You know, we yeah. invest a lot in our minds. We learn a lot. Yeah. You, you people, there's no stigma attached to going to a psychologist to kind of keep yourself mentally maintained, but... You know, I think the, holding back on the physical body is not necessarily kind of weighed up the same, yeah. the same weight. And execs stress far too much on the on the emotional, definitely, and the mental. So there's a huge emphasis on mental, on skills development, on executives going on these co on coaching programs, and 100 that has to happen. Executives need to con and entrepreneurs need to continue expanding their skill set. But um, if you're not continuously improving on your health, um, which would help you then kick into what we, call, we refer to as the secondary competencies. So that extra kind of spurt that you can get as an entrepreneur and an executive, you're really only doing yourself and your business an injustice. Um, and what it's, do you mean by the secondary competencies? So, um, you, you, you know, if you had to compare two like-for-like -like entrepreneurs, most of them are going to have similar primary competencies. They're ambitious, they've got drive, they know how to run a business in the same industry, maybe they'd know simplistically to restaurant owners, guys know how to run a restaurant, but 
that guy that can keep going for the extra three hours while the customers are getting really irritable at night is going to run a better place than the guy next door to him. And your physical competencies are what's going to make you that extra extra step. And you see that in professional sports. Um, so guys in the Premier League in England are all of e- almost equivalent competency. Everyone knows how to kick a ball, run around the field, score a goal. But uh, when guys move into certain clubs like Real Madrid, Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, Gareth Bale became international superstars because they were a club that understood that everyone's at a certain level and you take them a couple notches above that. That's the opportunity that you can have with health. Um, and we see that every day with our executives that we, um, we assess over and above the risk mitigation, if that makes any sense. It does. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, how, do you, how do you invest in your health? Jeez, obsessively. One word, obsessively. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in moderation. So, no, I mean... Um, uh, from a uh, so first of all, I don't believe in this notion called balance. I think it's everyone tries to fight, trying to reach this idea of balance, and I found it exhausting and uh, demoralizing to try find balance every every time you start a new project or you open a new business or you venture into a new territory. Your balance equations off. So I try focus on energy expenditure and uh, where I want to kind of focus the energy. Um, but I, I train every day. Um, I use it as time for me to reflect, to be on my own. I don't train in groups. It's just, it's just a personal preference. I listen to my music, whatever. Um, I utilize high-intensity interval and strength training, which have uh, um, disproportionate um, effects relating to the time that you need to invest. Sometimes 20 times less time needs to be spent to get the same effect if you're doing high-intensity interval training. Um, I focus on my eating. Uh, try eat as healthy as possible, for, partially for health reasons, but more for ethical reasons. I'm a vegetarian, so I think that's helped me with my cholesterol profile. Um, I'm informed. I go for my you annual and regular health word, checks. Uh, uh, cholesterol profile, yeah. which is, um, I think, something I've never even heard before. <laughs> I knew there was a thing called cholesterol, but that it has a profile. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of my cholesterol profile. Okay. I've worked hard to get my cholesterol profile in line with uh, that of um, the, the Japanese men that used to live to over 100. Uh, they refer to it as longevity syndrome. So they say the first person uh, that's going to live to 150 has already been born. So my business partner in our fight, which one of us is going to be first, <laughs> even though he's 20 years old. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you just need to send him on, on many planes. Yeah, <laughs> on his own, on his own. <laughs> and uh, try, yeah, try um, uh, have the boundaries of where it kind of overlaps. Uh, I do a lot of international business travel and try to keep my consistency there with my training. Uh, but I think training and nutrition for me has been quite key. I get most of my mental relaxation through my training, um, and reading and empowering myself which is what i encourage everybody to do everybody encourages and empowers himself on bitcoin investments and uh, cash management but empower yourself on how to be a healthier executive and entrepreneur supplementation's key um yeah those would be some of the so where would you i mean if someone wanted to kind of start this journey where, where would you kind of point them um, as an entrepreneur, I, th- I mean, it all starts off with being empowered and being in the know, and you have to go for the medical to get that insight. Uh, you really have to go through that full panel of tests, and it's intensive. The, 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 our process, our top process is about five to six hours long. Um, sounds like a lot of time, but 
know, not many people would put their nose up at being at a business lunch for three or four hours. So it's, it's not that much time. And if you're going to have a heart attack, they're not going to ask you if you really want to be admitted to ICU. They're going to admit you for yeah. the five or six weeks. Yes. So five or six hours is not that long. Um, and it doesn't have to be with us. I'm not trying to punt our business. But there's, I mean, you go to anybody to try to get that overall assessment of the of your health and then um, you'll understand exactly what the levers are that are critical if there are anything that's critical or the ones that you can attend more the medium and long term um, and integrate the uh, a balanced uh, program around exercise nutrition medication if it's needed supplementation uh, but you have to start off with the basis you have to know where you're starting from you have to be empowered I mean it's very interesting I read, I read a lot um, you know in almost all of these CEO kind of books you read, um, Phil Knight, Shoe Dog, mm. like all of these people, exercise is is like a fundamental thing baked into Very their routine. routine. And these guys are running monstrously large, complex, multinational, yeah. multi-site businesses and are yet still finding that time to exercise two, three, four, sometimes five hours a day, depending on who's, I mean, I think yeah. Malcolm Gladwell does four or five hours of training every single day and still writes 2,000 words, it's, you know, like he finds the time, who knows? Yeah. So that's, I mean, th- th- there's a misconception, though, that, that you need to invest a lot of time to train in order to be healthy. That's a misconception that's been corrected over time in that you can actually rather have a, um, a kind of routine that includes high-intensity interval training and strength training. And if you if you on the right intensity with your high intensity intervals, and it can be any sport or any activity, it can be walking, swimming, right, walking your dog. It, the, the fact that you're going to have the intensity of the interval um, decreases the amount of time you need to spend training, sometimes by 20 times. Um, so how many how long do you exercise a day? I average um, I average every day about during the week about an hour and a half. I train in the mornings. Um, but sometimes the, the, that training for that hour that I might be training could equate. So I'll be on my bike. I train uh, on a train in my garage and I'm on my bike and I'll do high intensity intervals for about an hour. But I'm getting a, a five to seven times multiple on what that was. That would be equivalent to riding a five hour ride on the road uh, because it's scientific and I'm applying a lot of kind of focus into those intervals and it's structured and it's not complicated to do. Um, and uh, that's proven to yield far greater cardiovascular benefit and you get the health benefit with far less time. Then if you incorporate strength work into it, you're really starting to kick into um, the factors that lead to longevity. So, I mean, we have mostly women listen to this podcast. Oh, really? We're assuming. We're assuming. We're assuming. Um, so, you know, like they're obviously all trying to pitch you now. Like, do you have a six pack like right now? <laughs> well, every, no one can see right now, right? <laughs> <No>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, that's something you you do. Like, I know how many Ironmans have you done? I've done uh, six different Ironmen. Six Ironmen. Yeah. And how do you like? You're running a multinational, monstrous yeah. business. How do you how do you balance that? How do you balance doing one of the most intense races you can do, and performing at work, and traveling, and having a wife? And I mean, how do you balance all that stuff? So, um, as I said, I've done away with this notion of balance. <laughs> So with uh, with obsession, I've actually cut back from um, Iron Ironman. I've I've rather focused. Uh, I mainly focus on cycling and and strength work at the moment. But Ironman training is um, a great kind of experience. You go through, you really learn about your body, you learn what you're good at, what you're not good at, 
Ironman, people think it's three disciplines, which is swimming, cycling, and running. And in fact, it's five. It's uh, swimming, cycling, running, transition between the sports, and then nutrition. Because everything can go perfectly and you don't know how to eat on the day and you really just completely stuff six months up of training because you didn't eat a bar at uh, 130 k's into the park. Um, so it was great to go through that, but I will be completely honest that to ret- sustain that intensity of training with them, the size business we're building is difficult. So I've rather focused onto one sport. As I said, it's all about energy and focus. Yeah. Um, but we, I keep, we keep our training up, my, my business partner and I, but every single day I train. I train six days a week, not every single day, six days a week. Um, and it's with discipline and obsession. I suppose the same way we run our businesses, yeah. Now, Tommy, you said something really early on um, where, you know, you wanted to grow from being just a doctor treating one person to growing a business that could treat many. And you said the word systems to scale. Can you, I mean, what is your approach to this? How do you, how do you approach systems to scale? What, like, what does that look like to you? Um, depends on, on, on the business that, that we're building. As I say, we've built quite a, a diversified set. Um, and I, I suppose one of like one of the key processes that we engage on when we embark and we're trying to think of scale is, is, is what are we the best at in that? So um, I think as an example, we, we're probably definitely the best in the country and we could probably compete against the world at the ability to, to um, mobilize large-scale clinical workforces. Um, and in order to do that, what we did is we broke down what we thought the fundamentals of that process were. And we literally broke them down into what we call the five S's, uh, which I won't disclose because it's quite uh, close to us. But we call it the five S's and everything we do in those five S's um, kind of related back. Um, so, I mean, the first two are staff and stock. So um, we learned a long time ago because our nurses were going out and doing HIV testing. And we learned if we took the same nurses and trained them a little bit better, and in something different. And we took the kits that we were giving them from a stock perspective and took out the HIV test and put in flu vaccines. We could deliver the same amount of flu vaccines if we were doing HIV tests. And then if we put something else into the bag, maybe we'd be able to deliver that on scale as well. And once we found those building blocks, um, it, it then allowed us to scale actually into diversified businesses and industries. Uh, but I suppose the important thing is to understand what those building blocks are. I assume that's how most people scale. Um, and then a lot of hard work, <laughs> a lot of hard work. Um, and I always, I, th- I think there's a notion by entrepreneurs that you get to a point that you can work on your business, not in the business. And it's this luxurious uh, posture of working on the business with these uh, um, endless days of relaxation. And in fact, we found the harder we work on the business, the more we work. Uh, not the, the more we work on the business, the harder we end up working because we're able to identify how to make things better and bigger. But all of our businesses, we've worked in the business before we've worked on. So I think that's what probably one of our keys is that we literally know it on the ground. We are the ones that used to drive the nurses in our cars and pack the kits and choose the stock and test the equipment. I'll never forget we... Uh, um, we're trying to test how to how to do HIV testing. Well, blood pressure, glucose, blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol, and HIV in one kind of consultation. So there are three drops of blood you have to have: cholesterol, glucose, and HIV. And we're trying to think how to do it. So we ended up calling it. 
the one prick three tests. Uh, but that's how detailed on the ground it was. Those are some of the secrets that we've had to build uh, scale, I, I believe, here and over, overseas. Yeah, I mean, I was also interested, um, you know, so you scaling, you moving to Australia. Um, and you, generally, as South Africans, we seem to have a bit of loser, loser complex that we always feel like whatever we're doing is not as good as what Australia. is happening yeah. elsewhere in the world. And you're saying that from a health perspective, you think we actually – further ahead than they are corporate from a corporate health and wellness perspective yeah um this industry is at least five years ahead of where the industry the end of this industry is in australia um so so i mean i'm not i'm not moving there we just we have um uh, two businesses that that we own and run in australia um but this it's very similar to how the industry was here a few years ago which is probably a bit boring for most listeners but it's quite um segmented and uh, siloed and here we saw a lot of um, kind of consolidation in the industry, which I suppose will happen there over time. We're seeing it already, um, and we yeah, it's, it's it's hard to run businesses across two time zones of such uh, vast spread. Yes, but we make it happen. So how often do you travel there? How do you how do you balance that? Um, between my business partner and I, we alternate months. So one of us is there every month, and we've got a scale team there in both businesses. Um, business partners. Um, management team and structure and, and it's called so personally and, and, and my partner we're on the phone with them every single day um, so most of our mornings filled up with Australia especially at the moment because it's, it's only 8 hours and um, it, it goes to 9 soon um, so it works quite well so from about 7 to about 11 we're on the phone with Australia and video conferences and etc and then we go on planned visits there each of us once every 2 months so one month each, but then you get called for these random meetings that uh, we feel one of us should be in, and we've done some mad trips. We've been there for two days at a time. <laughs> wow, more time in the air than on yeah. the Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I've left here before on a Sunday night, been back here on Thursday afternoon. Wow. Uh, and, you have a decent rating with the airline. Geez, yeah, we, uh, especially because I'm a doctor, I've had more than one cause on Qantas to attend to uh, sick patients. Sometimes being given some nice presents, but otherwise it's a pain. <laughs> so they actually do that thing when they go. Uh, yeah, is there a doctor on board? Yeah, definitely. I just I pray that there's no one that's pregnant because uh, the concept of delivering a baby on board scares me. <laughs> I mean, do you find? Do you think that you you become more attractive when like they shout out on the plane? Like, is there a doctor here? I actually, like, what I do up. is I, I stand up, I rip off my shirt. Yeah. And I just flex. Really? Yeah. And then and then I get a standing ovation and then we run to the patient. No, it's actually, yeah, it's almost like a little walk of shame because you can see everybody wants to ask what was wrong. Yeah. So you kind of just don't acknowledge anybody. And But then then what really is embarrassing is that the air hosts um, kind of start showering you with attention and extra drinks and uh, the occasional gift, like a bottle of wine or something, and you just want to carry on with a flight. <laughs> um, so do you dress accordingly? Like, I mean, when I fly, I strip down into like a, a ugly tracksuit. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think I look my most dashing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said something very interesting just now about scaling, how you were taking people, you know, and with the same people, if you shift their tool set or you shift yeah. their thing, you can actually get more performance out of them. Yeah. Um, did you find, I mean, is that the same in in every every like industry or not industry every kind of market you've been in? Like, is, do you think it functions? 
Um, essay, does it work as well in SA as it does in Australia? Or? Yeah, definitely. So as an example, in Australia, uh, we have a business that does uh, um, a huge number of flu vaccines. Um, and then in some of those clients, all we do is we upsell like a wellness check. Uh, it's the equivalent of a health screening here in, in South Africa. And it's the same nurse with the same amount of stock, a little bit extra time and, and uh, your margin out of that event grows uh, significantly. Here, yeah, we have been able to, I don't know about different industries, you know, but in the healthcare space, in different settings and with different types of professionals, we have been able to replicate that quite uh, quickly uh, because, you know, the, the building blocks of it. Um, and uh, so we're we able to take doctors out of their classic setting and put them in a, in a completely different setting with the right systems and processes we give them at the time to, to complete different work. Um, and I love I love that thinking because so many people when they talk about scale, it's you know how do we get more clients, more staff, yeah, you know just kind of like like just increase the size of everything and you've got a bigger pie as opposed to thinking like well with the resources I have, uh, what yeah, can I'm, I change to get another twenty percent? I mean we got asked uh, a long time ago we got asked to do medicals on behalf of uh, the road accident fund and the, the people that asked us were in a huge bond because they they had entered into a, an, an agreement that they were running the medicals. These were for people that were claiming directly to the road accident fund without legal representation. And the road accident fund needed a certain type of medical in order to take the case into court. Um, and they asked us if we could do it. But the problem is that most of these claimants were um, of lower income groups um, in very diverse um, geographical locations, townships, um, very far spread um, rural locations, and they couldn't get these people in front of the right doctors at the right time. So, you know, we had never done this type of medical work before, but we had found, like, it, it's, it's, it was thinking that we know exactly how to put the right clinical professional in the same room as the right patient at the right time to get the result that we need. So we activated that within 10 days, literally in 10 days. And we, we, we built, I mean, a huge amount of money in a very short space of time. I think the Road Accident Fund took us probably a 10 times multiple of time in order to pay us, but we, <laughs> we, we, we rolled it out quite effectively. We were quite proud of, of that. So again, breaking down the building blocks in order to see how to scale. And I mean, you know, starting as a doctor, did, like how does, how did, seems like your your learning your brain learning and your business learning are two different schools yeah uh, how did how did that transition happen um a transition like for, how you did know, being a doctor clinical like i'm going to focus on this one case and sure out the ins and outs of it and so so by the time i decided to leave clinical medicine i'd been uh, having these secret projects on my own in my room uh, for for about a year during final year working on business plans but literally when i made the call i uh, on a Thursday morning, I was sitting in the surgical trauma unit at Baragwanath Hospital. And the Monday morning, I was sitting in a boardroom in Rosebank. I remember I never knew that you could sort and filter data in Excel. So I had to generate a report for a client in my first week. And I never knew how to, that you did formulas and all these crazy things in Excel. And I literally sat for a weekend and I counted numbers uh, out of Excel. It was embarrassing. Um, so the transition was exciting but I can't really remember all of the, the detail. Very exciting at the time. But occasionally, uh, these things get sprung on you. I was sitting in my office the other day, and uh, all of the clinical doctors are, were um, busy. 
uh, and one of our colleagues went into labor at Execa, actually. So I managed to uh, um, avert delivering a baby because I really did not enjoy obstetrics at medical school. Uh, but uh, we get called to rack our, our inner medical brains here and there. Okay. Yeah. So could you do the, the work that you get other people to do still today? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the, I mean, I've, we often get called on to, to give clinical insights into stuff. I think, I think without it, it would have been hard to build the businesses we have. I think part of the, the secret is that, um, you know, my business partner and I, we've got another business partner who lives in Australia, we're all doctors, to really understand the work that we're trying to do. Um, I go as far as saying that, that we're specialists in, in this field. Um, otherwise, I don't think we'd be able to spot, would have spotted the opportunities and been able to activate the stuff as quickly as we could. Um, but I do prefer that there are there are other people that do the clinical do kind of kind of work for us. Yeah, I mean it's so interesting because so often kind of disruption in an industry comes from an outsider's perspective. So yeah. it's somebody who's jumped from one industry into another, they see the holes and they see the gaps and mm. they kind of fix it. And I find it very interesting that you've almost done it the other way around. You've taken that medical knowledge, that kind of like in depth knowledge, and applied. Other industry thinking to it. So, like, yeah. how do we how do we treat this like you would uh, FMCG business? Exactly. So, you know, how do we kind of yeah. scale this sort of thing? And you've almost disrupted your industry from the the inside out. I, I think that's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, um, uh, we we do try to disrupt. We we we've invested in a lot of technology as well, which has helped us disrupt. Um, and that's a big part of our lives: our technological businesses that roll out online and app based programs. Um, here and overseas, so that's true, proven to be quite disruptive. And yeah, I, I do think that our, our methodology and our thinking um, has proven to be disruptive. We, yeah, don't try to limit ourselves to our thinking. I mean, I like uh, just to you know, I think we're running running near to the end of this yeah. interview, but I think something you you touched on earlier is kind of on a on a treating you know treating millions of people like. Do you ever think of legacy when you're doing this kind of stuff? You're like, is there a golden thread that holds everything together for you that will help you filter your ideas or your new businesses or anything like that? Or are you an equal opportunities entrepreneur? Um, no, I, I mean, our call, my calling is, um, is is to make a difference, and 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 the fact that we're impacting lives is, is massive. Every person we diagnose is HIV positive. You know, we, we tell people who get diagnosed by us as HIV positive that this is the best day of their life, not the worst day. They, they're now empowered to change their lives. That means someone can be diagnosed as HIV positive, go into treatment within weeks, be 100% healthy, enormously productive, and generate an income for their family for years to come. Um, I mean, that gives me goosebumps thinking about it. These, these babies we delivered last year, I, the first time, the first baby we delivered, out of our patient management, the, the base of HIV positives we manage, I mean, I literally said I'd do everything again just for that moment, just to know that we've brought a life into the world that's not afflicted by an illness that, whose mother got infected most likely due to a socio-political, economical circumstance, yeah. I think is uh, material, material. But, you know, we're running a business um, and off that, I suppose there's an acumen that comes and we're still able to identify opportunities outside of healthcare. We need to um, create a legacy in ourselves and our family as well, first and foremost. So that's still a key driver. Um, but the, what wakes us up in the morning, I suppose, is the fact that we 
seriously impacting this country and this world. I'm quite I proud think it's of such it. An interesting position you put yourself in because there's this whole kind of thinking of um, the next wave of kind of NGOs is, is actually not people who don't make a profit. It's you know the businesses yeah. that can affect a positive change Sustained. and make a profit are the ones that are most likely to survive because mm. uh, you know you're not dependent on somebody else's generosity or money or whatever to actually deliver on what you are. You're making money, but you're also changing people's lives. And yeah, people. in a sustained way. But the, I mean, so many NGOs in our space have just kind of started to hit the wall because the funding's dried up um, and that, that most then proved to be not as effective, I think, as they set out to be. But I agree with you. I mean, there has to be a sustained model behind the delivery. Um, and quite excited to what the next uh, steps of healthcare in this country bring. Quite excited at that. Level. How do you balance that, the, the, the health and the profit portion? Like, how do you, how do you weigh that? How do you weigh that up? Um, well, look, I mean, you know, as I say, it's a business. We, we, we're not running a charity. Um, so we, 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 we charge for the services that we, that we roll out. I mean, most of our services, so we're a B2B company. Most of our, serv- most of our key clients are the, are the corporates, you know, um, across the, 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 both countries. That's who the client is. The, the, the ultimate client is the patient and the employees on the ground, but the corporate's paying for the services. Um, we have learned how to tap into donor-funded money in order to roll out services outside of the corporate space. Um, but once you're rolling out a service to a corporate, you know, the service might be healthcare related, but it's a business decision. Um, and the businesses need to be profitable and grow. So it's not a trade-off. It's, it's almost, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fringe onto the ethical dilemma in that space. Cause you're not, you're not dealing with uh, patients and, and their kind of affordability in the, in the work we do. It's more B2B. Um, so the, the two are quite separate. Huh? I so, I mean, if I were to ask you, how many people did your business treat in the last 24 hours? 24 hours? Yeah. I don't know in the last 24 hours, but on a monthly basis, um, we, we, we've got um, over one and a half million lives enrolled on our online platform in South Africa. Um, you know, uh, we, we'd see a, between 10 and 20,000 people in our on-site corporate clinics a month. Um, our executive wellness business sees... Um, probably anywhere between two to 400 executives a month. Um, in the last couple of months, our Australian business did 75,000 flu vaccinations. Um, and on our online platforms in Australia, we've got about 500,000 lives. Those are some, some high level metrics. Um, we also do a lot of, um, kind of occupational health work and there are thousands of medicals we do every month, thousands, I don't know, relatively. Um, so Literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives are touched every month. 350,000 people read an article um, last week on our online platform. Um, last month, sorry, last month. So those are some of the numbers. Quite proud of those uh, those numbers. Huh? Quite proud. Sure, I, mean, I think on that note, so Thank you. End. Thank you very much. Jeff. Thanks very much, man. Inspirational to meet someone who's growing such a big business not achieving balance in their life but kind of okay with it <laughs> yeah. and I think also affecting a bit of kind of positive change thank you thanks thanks for the time I appreciate it thanks thank for the opportunity um, well thank you very much for listening everybody you've been listening to Radio which is a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa uh, my name is Ross Drakes and we have our missing host is Rich Mulholland who is chilling in Cape Town on his one wheel 
or electric skateboard. His electric skateboard. Um, so he's not being healthy. He's being lazy and <laughs> using electricity to power him around instead of his own body. Um, I'd just like to to quickly thank some of our sponsors um, for making this possible. Bitvest McCarthy, Bitvest Car Hire, 10XE, and I suppose I can actually just reach across the table and shake your hand. Exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for being our sponsors. Um, if you if you'd like to hear some more of our episodes, you can go to radio.co.za. We'd really appreciate it if you rated us on iTunes or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your, your media. And if you're an entrepreneur looking to join and learn from other like-minded entrepreneurs, you can go to eonetwork.org to find us. Thank you very much and goodbye.